Hello, and welcome to Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro, a podcast all about the Bible, theology, and all things related to the Christian faith. I'm the Ryan half of Ryan and Brian, and this is episode number 15. In this episode, we answer a question from Mike, one of our listeners. Mike emailed and asked, with Brian specializing in John, what are the most impactful parts to him in the book of Revelation? So, as requested, we're answering that question as Brian leads us through several verses in chapters 5 and 6. If you have a biblical topic you would like us to discuss, you can submit a question as well by going to our website, thebiblebistro.com, and clicking the button in the upper right corner. You should do that. If you're enjoying the podcast, would you mind leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or a review on Facebook? If that's not your thing, would you mind sharing the post about this episode or another episode you've enjoyed on Facebook? Or you can just tell a friend. That works too. We'd love to expand our audience. All right, enough of me talking. Let's jump into this episode as we discuss some of the key imagery of Revelation in chapters 5 and 6. All right, well, welcome back to the Beast Row Bible. <laughs> hey, Brian. Welcome back to the Beast Row Bible, Bobby. <laughs> Does that hey. sound right? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, well, here we are. We're back in the We're bistro. Back in the bistro. It's good to be here. Yes, so. it is good back. Oh my <laughs> gosh! Do we need to redo this? Do we need to start over? Or are we going to just roll it from here? Let's just roll it. <laughs> it's not going to get any better. You how, are you, anyway. how are you doing today, Ryan? I'm doing all right. I just woke up, so I'm, I'm caffeinating. Uh, okay. Because it's just a morning. We had a breakfast. Yeah. We're coming back in the bistro. We're going to yeah. talk about something uh, fun. A little earlier than brunch, you know. A little earlier than brunch. A little later than like a typical breakfast. Right. So it's, so it's what, what would, that, what, what what would you call that? A pre-gaming for brunch? I don't know. I don't <laughs> Post, know. Post-breakfast? Post-breakfast. Se- seconds? <laughs> yes, we're hobbits now. I'm the world's <laughs> biggest hobbit. I'm a hobbit with a thyroid problem. <laughs> anyway. Well, you know, the Tooks could almost ride ponies. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Anyway, this is descending quickly this morning. So we're going to talk about, what are we going to talk about? I thought we'd talk about the book of Revelation a little bit, a couple of passages from it actually. So we've, we previously talked about kind of an introduction to the book and I'll go ahead and say, you know, we're, we're starting to get some feedback on the, on our podcast. Lots of people are interested in the book of Revelation. They want to hear about it. They want to think about it and know about it. You know, it, it's kind of funny. I, you've probably seen this when you go to a church and say, hey, what, you know, I'm, I'm a New Testament professor or I've, you know, studied the New Testament. What do you want to hear about? Oh, let's talk about Revelation. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about it, a lot of confusion about it. And so, mm-hmm. so we did an introduction to Revelation, some of the things to think about when you approach it. And uh, we got actually a, a, a listener question. We're starting to get a few yes. people giving some suggestions and listener questions. Of course, it takes a while for us to, because we record these ahead, it takes a while for us to get to them. But there, we have a listener that's mi- named Mike, and he asked a question that really made me think. It was about, um, you know, what are some passages from the book of Revelation that have had an influence on you or or that mm-hmm. were meaningful to you. And my initial I'll be honest, my initial thought was, well, the whole book, you know, right. it's really the message of the book as a whole is what is the most powerful, I think. Right. And yeah. and I you know, I've said before, I think the book of Revelation is a book for our time. Not not necessarily because of, you know, I think, oh, these these things are being fulfilled in in that sense, but it it is of it's very visual. Yes. It uses a lot of images that are very strong, and we're a very visual culture. You know, mm-hmm. we tend to think in pictures and images and movies. Even we've talked about that some, right? So, well, and you're kind of uniquely qualified to talk about Revelation a little bit because it's 
attributed to John. Sure. And, yeah. and you know, I've studied it some and yeah, I don't know about uniquely qualified. Well, you're not uniquely. There's other people as yeah. well, but it's but not, I, you're I, just like, oh, I know everything. <laughs> no, no. You, I hope not. No, you don't. I'm just going <laughs> to, in case everyone needs to know, Brian doesn't know everything. Well, but so like, I think for me, like revelation, mm-hmm. um, you know the the part for me is 21 22 like for me yeah. that's always been the most impactful because the other the rest of it i felt like at least in modern culture or how right. it's like almost trying to read tea leaves <laughs> well the first three chapters too a lot of people deal with those the, the letters to the seven churches and right. that's that's a pretty easy part to to understand because we can look at the historical context there and and they're a lot more like you know kind of like the letters of paul though they use use a lot apocalyptic literature let me say a little bit about that. So I, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert in the book of Revelation, but I have spent some time studying it. When I was um, doing my my schooling, I did some uh, research specifically on apocalyptic literature. I guess like everybody else, I said everybody wants to know about Revelation. So did I. You <laughs> right. Know? Had a really good class when I was in college from a man named Tom Frisney that was very helpful. And and so actually, what I'm going to share today are two passages that when Mr. Frisney got to those passages in our class, it kind of clicked for me. It was one of those light bulb moments. I'm like, oh, I, okay, I see what's happening here. And so that's why I thought I'd share those. I think they're powerful images. Uh, you know, you're always challenging me to talk about, well, so what on this? Yeah, and I think these, exactly, are, these yeah. are some that have some, some implications. So I thought we'd talk about them. So the first one is actually in Revelation chapter 5. So we're going to look at one passage from Revelation chapter 5. One passage from Revelation chapter 6, and I'll just kind of give you the background of Revelation 5. We get at the beginning of this a scroll, actually into 4, there's a scroll that no one can open. You know, John kind of reacts to this, that, you know, he he was uh, upset that no one could open the scroll. But then we find in chapter 5, the one who is worthy to open the scroll is one who is described as a lamb. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, we have this Old Testament image of a lamb that before it shears is silent. And of course, you know, we see that fulfilled in Jesus that when he went to the cross. So in the book of Revelation, the lamb is a way to talk about Jesus. In fact, it's one of the biggest ways that the author of the book of Revelation refers to Jesus. So if you look at verse six, I'm just going to look at just that. The first, actually, just Chap- the f- chapter five, verse. Six. I'm sorry, chapter five and verse six. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to look at the very first phrase here. Okay, not we're, the first sentence. Basically, we're not even going to look beyond that, just to talk about some things and to kind of show the way that symbolism is used in apocalyptic literature in order to make some points. So it says, "Then I saw a lamb." This is John. So it's, we call this a vision because he's saying, "I saw this." Right? Mm-hmm. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So here was the question that I I can remember this to this day. I was a college student, right? But I can remember Mr. Frisney asking the question, what does a slain lamb stand like? Hmm. Right, you, yeah. you get what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's kind of a it, it's it's a contradictory image in a way, right? Mm-hmm. You don't expect a slain land to be standing, and, and so this is the point. This language is a figure, a metaphor for talking about a truth about Jesus. So Jesus is the Lamb that was slain, but He now stands. And when you think about the word resurrection in Greek, it has this idea of standing, you know, standing up is kind of the the base of that idea. So then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, but it was standing. 
Okay, so this is talking about the reality of who Jesus is. The reason he's worthy to be able to open the seals on this scroll, and I'll go ahead and say that I didn't want meaning to talk about this, but the scroll it says is written inside and out. Basically, it, it's kind of a way to talk about. It, it's full of of writing, right? Yeah. It's full of everything that you need to know. And yet it's sealed up. And so this is why John's upset. It's like, this is what we want to know, and yet there's no one who can open it except for Jesus. So this talks about how important it is. I think what John's getting at is how important it is what Christ did. His his death on the cross is what makes him worthy to be the one who then is able to reveal to us everything that we need to know in order to be people who are in right relationship with God, but also people who are living out, as we've talked about, this mission who are who are living out this this truth of what God has called us to? So <laughs> that's just that's just the first half of that sentence, right? But it's yeah. and that's the thing about the Book of Revelation; it's dense with meaning. It's not something to, to read through quickly, but I think we need to stop at each of those images and, and think about what they mean. I'll say a couple more things about the Lamb because it, it's interesting. Lamb, we think about you know again when Christ went to the cross, it, it, the the gospel writers make this reference that he was like a lamb before it shears is silent. You know, he didn't speak a word, this this kind of thing. He didn't defend himself, but he went willingly. But then in the book of Revelation, there's a couple of, again, contradictory images because later we're going to find this lamb as a shepherd. Mm. That's kind of an interesting yes, image, the, right? Going from the lamb to the shepherd. Yeah, and and I think if you think in in those terms, Christ became like us. Right, if we're if we're the sheep, who, we're all like sheep who've gone astray. Isaiah fifty three, right? Mm-hmm. Each of us has gone to his own way, and so here's the idea that that he he came as a, as a lamb among the sheep, if you will, mm-hmm. in order to become our shepherd, to become our good shepherd. He became like us. He, Hebrew writer says it, it pleased God that he should become like us in in every way, right? Right, and, and so yet yeah, without sin. And so this this idea again of the lamb is a powerful image of the way that he became the one who who then is the leader the of the leader. flock. Yes, right? he was the lamb that was slaughtered that became the leader of the flock. Yeah, yeah. So so he's he's looking as one who's been slain. I think that he's standing is important. But then here's the other thing I'll say in the book of Revelation, position is always important. So you'll see words like before. Uh, like in front of mm-hmm. that that kind of an idea or around, uh, you know, you see these kind of images. And here's what I want you to notice: the lamb is standing. It says at the center of the throne. Now, here's another kind of thing: y- you have to take these images for what they are. The throne. We already saw that God was on the throne. Mm-hmm. Okay, we we have images of God on the throne. Uh, Book of Isaiah, for example, I think at chapter six, do you remember that when, when Isaiah, his call, we call it that he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. You know, this idea of kind of the Lord on his throne in the heavens. Mm -hmm. And and this is what we see. God is on the throne, but now the lamb is in the center. You see that idea of the center? Yeah. So it doesn't say center. Does your say center? Yeah, it does. So, so my is... ESV actually says, "And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw oh, in the stand. midst in the midst of, right. yeah, as though I had been saying, right." So it's that idea, and we're going to see this though that all these things surround him. So right. the throne is at the very center. I'll go ahead and say it this way: the very center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, I hope this doesn't offend any of our listeners when they learn that they are not the center of the universe. But <laughs> if it does. Sorry. (laughs) You may need a different podcast. But I hope that doesn't offend you, Ryan. I tell you, you're not the center of the universe. (laughs) Oh, my. 
But we're friends, right, Brian? <laughs> but God is at the center, right? But now here's the thing, and I, and I was kind of again, I, I kind of play with this when I'm teaching this with students to kind of get them to think about it. So if God's sitting on the throne and the Lamb is standing in the center of the throne, how does that work? You know, right. is it that he's is the Lamb standing on God's lap, or you know, is it is it that <laughs> right. it's a big enough throne that they can sit side by side? One stands, one sits, and and here's the thing: that's not the point. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when John uses these images, I don't think, you know, like I said, sometimes there's even a contradiction, slain lamb standing. And here's this idea of of the lamb standing in the center of the throne and God is in the center of the throne. It says something about who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. He is, he is just like we see in the gospels, he has all of the same authority and all of the same rights and all the same power that God the Father has, right? He is, he is equal with God. This is yeah. what gets him in trouble, right? Yeah. Is he makes himself equal with God. John chapter five, for example. And so here he is standing at the center of the throne, and he is surrounded by four living creatures. We've talked before about the book of Ezekiel and how the book of Revelation picks up on some of these images. I think when we talked about the temple theme in John, I kind of used Uh some of those images. And so this idea of the four living creatures is an image that we see in in Ezekiel that is picked up on here. So they are surrounded, the four living creatures. I'll talk about those another day, perhaps. And then there's these 24 elders. And let's talk a little bit about numbers. The 24 is, is up a bit higher than that. And what we have here, so so there are several numbers that are significant in the in the gospel, John. We're going to see another one in just a minute. Seven is significant. I'll, I'll say something about that in a minute. Twelve and multiples of 12 are important. Mm-hmm. And I think... I can tell you why of this if you want, but but 12 and multiples of 12 stand for God's people mm-hmm. in some way. Okay, so we have 12, we have 24, we have 144,000 right. later on. So this number 12 and 12, it, it kind of has this idea of, if you think about the Old Testament 12, you'd think about the Hebrew Bible 12, you'd think about the, 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 the tribes. The tribes. And of course, then Jesus chooses- 12 disciples. And, and you know, he he's-, he's Saying by that, I think I'm creating this this new community around myself. So you put those together, and we're talking about all of God's people throughout all time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so here's the here's the the, the 24 elders mm-hmm. standing for these Old Testament people of God, New Testament people of God surrounding. And so again, thrones in the center, four living creatures around it, 24 elders surrounding them. And then it, it says this: the Lamb had seven horns. And seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, or some of your translations will say something like the sevenfold spirit of God. So it's kind of a, it's it, yeah. it, it, how do we understand that? So the spirit in the book of Revelation is kind of a, it's difficult, but you know, I would understand this as being a Trinitarian thing. We've got the father, we've got the, the lamb, and then we have the sevenfold spirit here. But the seven, the number seven always has to do with completeness or sufficiency or enough. The first seven we have in scripture, of course, is is the seven days of creation. God God created all things in these seven days or six days and they rested on the seventh day. So that, that seven is the fulfillment or the completion of the creation of everything. That's the first one we see back in the book of Genesis. And so the number seven has this idea of completeness or fulfillment. And so when, you know, again, I don't know if you've ever seen, have you ever seen these pictures that some people try to paint of these images in the book of Revelation? <laughs> no. I mean, there are some people who who try to, to take this in a literal way. And again, these are images. So the idea of a, a lamb with seven eyes and, and seven horns is kind of a weird 
image, right? Yes. I mean, you can imagine. Yeah. And, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of that or anything, but I think, again, this is an image that's being used in order to talk about something. Right. And you're saying, as we go back to this again, this is the Holy Spirit. Well, the sevenfold spirit, but I, sevenfold spirit. I, I want to talk about the horns and the you, eyes, gotcha. and then yeah. we can come back and talk about the sevenfold spirit. So it says the lamb had seven horns. Horns in Revelation ha- have to do with power. And we're going to see later on kings have horns. These other kind of animals or creatures have have horns. It has to do with their power, their authority. And, and the idea of having seven horns. Super authority. It is mega authority. Sufficient. I would say sufficient power, sufficient. <laughs> yes. of, I'm you trying can, to make a joke. Yeah, Brian. yeah, you're fine. Yeah. It, it's. <laughs> he says you're fine in a very dismissive way. Well, sometimes I get focused. And I, I know. I, I, I don't I, notice. Your, your humor sometimes is very subtle. Is it? <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. You're I'm fine. Just, you're fine. You're, you're good. You're a very good teacher. I'm just trying to help us process it all right. together. So seven horns is this idea of enough power, enough authority. And then seven eyes, if you think about eyes, it's that, I'll go ahead and tell you the way we could say this in theological terms is seven horns would be all powerful. Seven eyes would be omniscient or all knowing because the idea of eyes are that you, you see, <laughs> you know, you see everything, you know, if they say sometimes about, about teachers, they, you know, teacher has eyes in the back of their head. Right. Yeah. And so it's that kind of idea that this lamb has enough eyes to see see all, to see everything. Mm-hmm. So this is the lamb, again, having the attributes of the divine, of God, I would say. And then um, seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that sent out into all the earth. If you go back into Revelation 1, of course, you got the seven candlesticks, and it says each of these, you know, the seven stars that are in the hand of God that, that go out to the seven churches. You know, h- however we understand that is the connection, perhaps. The spirit serves as the way... I don't want to say this. The spirit serves as the way that God interacts with his with his people. And mm-hmm. so I think you have the spirit here and you know Jesus promised that in in the gospel of John that I'm sending another counselor, another um some people translate that comforter or counselor. The Greek word is parakletos, a paraclete who 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 will you know, be the intimacy, the connection that we have with God. So, so those are kind of the images that we have there. And, and then verse seven, it says, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Again, you know, he's in the center of the throne and yet he takes the scroll from the one who's in on the throne, who's God. Mm-hmm. When he had taken it, the four living creatures, 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense. We'll come back to that incense in a minute. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and say this now, which are the prayers of God's people in the temple. And I'll go ahead and say this, this first part, you know, I talk about the temple a lot, I realize, but in this first part of the book of Revelation, there are these images that go along with the physical temple that we would think about. And and I've said before, I think it's not that John is modeling this image of reality on the temple, but the temple is a model of, of reality. The temple was designed to show us kind of the heavenlies. And Mm -hmm. so the Holy of Holies, for example, has this idea of woven tapestry with all these angels that are in this in this room where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that was where God's presence was mediated. And he was surrounded by these tapestried angels. You know, so this was a kind of representation 
of the reality. That's what the temple gotcha. was. Okay, right, yeah. mm-hmm. and so here's this idea that the incense, the altar of incense, is one of the parts of the temple furniture. Uh, this is where they would go and burn incense. I tell you an example where you see this in scriptures in Luke chapter one. Do you remember Zechariah? Yes, uh, John the Baptist's dad. Mm-hmm. He was the priest who was on uh, duty at that time, and he was the one who was going in to offer incense. You know, for the holy of holies, right? Well, in the holy place, on the holy place, yes. I'm and, sorry. and so, no, that's fine. And so, um, it, it says then an angel appeared to him there. I don't know if you see that. Yes, but the angel said to him, "Do not be afraid." Yeah. So go go up just above that. Where where does it say that the angel appeared? And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So that's what we're talking about. This was a piece of furniture. And so here's this idea of the altar of incense. They, they all have these bowls full of incense. And we'll come back to that perhaps later. But it says these are the prayers of God's people. So Zechariah was offering prayers there. And and the I think the image here of incense, the reason God commanded this burning the incense is that's the smoke and the... It was rising up. To was the rising up. It's, it's carrying the prayers, if you will, of God's people. So I think that's the image that we have there. So each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls full of incense, the prayers of God's people. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth, which is an interesting phrase we may come back to another time. But this idea that the reason that the Lamb is worthy is he has bought this people for God, and he has made them. What what God really... Um, has intended from the beginning is for his people to be a kingdom and priests, people people who are able to mediate God's presence to others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might remember in the in the Old Testament, this is what God said Israel was going to be. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. That, that's what the promise was. They were the ones who were to carry the message of God to the nations and and to be the mediator between between God and others. That was kind of the intention, as I understand it. So now that's happened because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Questions, comments to this point? Anything you want to? Uh, no, I mean, so how do you make that connection between the seven horns and the seven eyes? To uh, right. how do we make those connections? Because you know, I don't think John gave us study notes. No, you have to think about what a horn would represent, and mm-hmm. and uh, I'm saying these things after I've kind of read the whole book and right, and, and, yeah. and and other apocalyptic literature. So I think you have to think about what does a horn do for an animal? Like how does an animal use a horn, mm-hmm. right? What does it represent? It's that kind of power and that, you know, mm-hmm. we even, we have phrases in our English language that if I talk about locking horns with someone, right, that's referring to something that takes place in the natural realm mm-hmm. that then I've. Kind of the opposite of anthropomorphized, I guess. You know yes, what I'm saying? it is. Yes, but you you get what yeah. I'm saying is we think about those horns as the you know the kind of the power the the way that we I'm kind of pounding my fist together here, which doesn't translate to podcast very well. Yeah, it's an audio format. <laughs> but horns horns have that kind of an idea. Now eyes again, you have to think about what does what does eyes and these four living creatures. I'll go ahead and tell you. You know, we're kind of not going through the book in in order. We're you know, I'm pulling out a couple of different passages, but if you look back when these four living creatures are described, this is back in chapter four, verse six, at the end of verse six, it says in the center 
or in their midst is probably what it says in in the ESV. Is that that right? Uh, verse around six. the throne in the halfway down verse six of chapter four. Uh, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Full of eyes. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. So I've said this when we did the introduction to Revelation. This will probably be good to remind you of this. Revelation is unlike there. There are very few things in the New Testament that are like the Book of Revelation. There are a couple. There's one we call the Little Apocalypse or the Olivet Discourse that Jesus pronounces that we see in the Synoptic Gospels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when he's he's on the Mount of Olives, he's telling his disciples some of these things. So we see very little apocalyptic literature in the New Testament. There's a little bit, but mm-hmm. but Revelation seems so different. And I think that's why one of the reasons people are like, oh, what does this what does this mean? Right. But when you begin to look at the Book of Ezekiel and Zechariah and Isaiah in the Old Testament. And then you get really crazy and you start reading some of the intertestamental apocalypses like First Enoch and the Apocalypse of Zechariah, Apocalypse of Zephaniah. Uh, when you see those kind of non-canonical, these are, these are not a part of our Bible, mm-hmm. but these are th- books that the Jewish people were writing during that period of time. I don't believe they're inspired by the Spirit, but they're using this kind of language. So what seems so odd to us, this idea of full of eyes. That's weird. And again, people try. I've seen paintings of people trying to portray that idea of a creature that's full of eyes. When we think of that or see that, it seems really weird to us. But I think the people to whom John was writing would have recognized these images because this had been used. This before. kind of language was, was normal to them. Yes. Again, well, yeah, I don't know about not normal, normal, but it's but it was it was known. Yeah, it was they're, known they're, to them. they're not going around talking to each other like this all the time. But again, like they have all the old. They would have known the the, the Jewish scriptures very well. And they would have right. known, they, right. they would have read Ezekiel and known. And, and maybe I should have done this. Maybe this would have helped you. If I think, if you think about what does an eye do, if I would have asked it that way, maybe, how would you describe, Ryan, what, what does an and, eye and do? I, I view the world around me. And okay. So if we think about, and, and Ezekiel has the same image, if we have these, and Daniel, if we have these creatures that are full of eyes, and, and, and I'll go ahead and say these four creatures kind of reflect certain aspects of God's character because they're, they're right around the throne, right? Yeah. So they're, they're the closest, if we think again, in terms of this ring going and moving yeah, out. Yeah, to the whole universe. Here, mm-hmm. here, here he is. And so this idea of eyes being able to see and to comprehend, to perceive what's going on, mm-hmm. maybe a way to, to say about it. We conflate in English. I actually thought about this way too much one time. <laughs> um, we conflate verbs of seeing and knowing, right? Because yes. I, I, I spend a lot of times on testimony. Mm-hmm. But if I say to you, if, if, if I ever got something through to you, Ryan, <laughs> you <laughs> would say... <laughs> You're really coming at me today, bro. You would say, oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, but that's different. Do you know or did you see? Well, I think... I think <laughs> There's a relationship between right. seeing and the way we come to knowledge, right? Is what I would say. Say and but and in fact, Jesus uses this idea of seeing and blindness mm-hmm. to talk about those. Is not literally seeing; it's talking about understanding, like spiritual blindness. I came. That's that's what he says in chapter nine of the Gospel of John. Just as one example, I came so that the seeing would be blind and that the blind would see. And the Pharisees immediately go, oh, we're blind, you know, and he's like, you said it. (laughs) 
You said it, not yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. So the point is, you know, what, what is the old saying? There's none so blind as those who will not see. So it's that kind of idea of perception. So if you think about eyes as, as this idea of perception, or, and again, I would say knowing, mm-hmm. then to have seven eyes is to have the full amount of eyes that are necessary to see all. <laughs> right. All seeing, in, in a sense, I suppose you'd say. But, you know, I think omniscient is another way to, to think about that. Okay. Does so that, does that make sense or yeah, not? Yeah, no, okay. that, that makes sense. I think that's the th- the thing is kind of going because they're, uh, I mean, we see this in all kinds of cultures, people trying to find these different ways to talk yes. about, like, how do I understand this? And so, well, this person has this right. idea and this person has that idea. And so what, again, I'm just trying to figure out, like, how do we, how do we get to the point where we kind of go, like, this is, this is a good understanding. Yeah. I think you just have to keep reading it and keep not just revelation like i said the other the old testament apocalypse you know you, you when you begin to understand <laughs> i always say you get in trouble you know you're in trouble when you begin to use parts of the book of revelation in order to explain what you mean in other parts of scripture <laughs> <laughs> and that's the power though of the book of revelation these images are so strong they're so powerful and I was I was just thinking about this. I've had students in the past, and it happens usually about any time I teach through the whole book of Revelation. I'll say, we're, hopefully, we're at some point we'll put together an entire class, entire teaching on the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. But at some point in the middle of those classes, I've had this happen on more than one occasion. A student will say, "Well, why didn't John just say that? <laughs> you know, if that's what he meant, why didn't he say it? Why didn't he say? Well, there. But here, think about this. Okay, you know, here is Jesus who did everything that's necessary on the cross. And he is both all-powerful, he's able to do what is sufficient in order to accomplish these things, and he is the one who knows what needs to be done. He has the wisdom, we might say, something like that. You could have said it that way, but I think these images drive it home to us in a way. You know, there are certain people, and and I don't know if all people are this way, It, it has to do with ways of knowing, perhaps, Howard Gardner's book, for example, but... Um, I, what? <laughs> what? We'll talk about that another time. But uh, <laughs> but this idea that some people think in images, right? And 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 I'd say for all of us, images are powerful. In fact, uh, some memory people, you know, people who have trouble with their memories, they'll say, well, you know, picture an image, right? Mm-hmm. Like the and the more ridiculous, the more kind of outlandish mm-hmm. that image is, the better that helps you remember that. And that's the thing with the book of Revelation. Like I can picture after you begin to learn them and think about them and talk about their meaning, you picture these things. You know, so you see the lamb standing as one who had been slain in the center of the throne. And it it reminds you about truths about Jesus. So that's why I say you get to a point where the book of Revelation actually begins to be commentary on and, and begins to help you understand other parts of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Oh, which okay, is, yeah. Which you, you, you get what yeah, I'm saying. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and you referenced a book that we have no idea. <laughs> Sorry. We can, <laughs> That's we, all right. We can cut that I out. just want everyone to – no, we're not going to – we're going to leave it in there. I just want everyone to know <laughs> that you didn't miss anything because <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, you know, it's like that book from that Gardner. Yeah, yeah. Howard, what? Howard Gardner. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> You can keep saying his name. I still don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, so yes. So you're worthy to, you know, we have this song and it says, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands. Thousands, of course, is a big number. And you take thousand times a thousand, that's even a bigger number. (laughs) 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne. See that again? The throne is still at the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne of the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So there's this idea that that here's God's people and then all of creation joins together in order to, to ascribe glory and honor and praise and power to God, which is the way that the universe was created. Okay. So this is the image of things being put back into place, right? God at the center and all of creation, every knee bowing, right? Mm -hmm. Every tongue offering praise is the way that the universe is right. And that's the image that we get here with the lamb and God at the center of the throne. So comments or, or questions on that? I would have never seen that if you hadn't said something about that. I, it, again, I, you know, I said at the beginning of this episode, you know, I felt like sometimes reading the tea leaves and, you know, I could see that Jesus is the lamb who was slain. But I think the standing thing, again, like some of these yeah. words that are in there that I might have read, like, oh, it, he's just talking about Jesus. But this the standing and the, the positional sure. piece of this. And I know there's a lot of imagery in there that, you know, I don't understand uh, the horns and the eyes and right. just the the completeness and the the omniscience. That was um, uh, just really interesting. So I don't I don't know if I have any other okay. thoughts or questions on it. It's just, you know, I, revelation's I, hard. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, it is, but it, it is. isn't. And, and sometimes I think, I don't want to say this. Sometimes we ask a different question. We're expecting something different from revelation than what it's giving us to. Yeah. So we look for some of these other kinds of things, basically. What's going to happen next in history is kind of maybe the question we bring to it when it's instead giving us these very bold and sometimes I, I, I use the word graphic images sometimes. It's very strong images in order to teach us truths about the present, <laughs> right. about how things are. Uh, how they were in when the church was being persecuted by the Romans and, and how they are now as we await the second coming of Jesus in this time. In yeah, and, and I think that's what you're what you just brought up is something that we've talked about. It might be a future episode. I don't I don't right. know what the order here we're going. Um, <laughs> we're gonna put this out. But just like the hermeneutics, what we're bringing to it and our yes. own expectations. Sure. And so when we bring something with a particular expectation, right, we sometimes miss what it's what it's trying to say right. because we're pushing our own expectations on scripture. I guess here's what I would say. If you don't want to just listen to what somebody else like me is saying about the book of Revelation, I would say look at one vision like this, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we we read the book as a whole. And the more we understand the book as a whole, I think the more we understand the individual parts. But start by looking at one of these visions and, and just, I guess, try to picture it and try to think about what what would that be saying about who this is. Let me give you one other example if I can. So yeah. this is in chapter six mm-hmm. and I'm going to kind of skip over. So we've already said the lamb's the one who's worthy to open the seals. There's these seven seals. <laughs> I'll go ahead and say this. An interesting part of the structure is even though there's this whole series of sevens, a lot of times you get to that last seven and or that last of the seven and it opens up a whole nother series of sevens. It's like we never quite get finished and then there's another series of sevens that opens up. We'll, we can talk about that structure another time. One person that's helped me understand that a lot is, um, I think it's Bruce Metzger's book. I'll, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. <laughs> another book. <laughs> I know. I think it's, I think, I think, but anyway. I'll, I'll, I appreciate you saying there's another sure. book and the author's name and not just saying 
his name in the midst right. of a sentence. Well, there's there's a, there's a couple of books that, that I think are really good. We've talked about Craig Kester in the past on here, and he has a book that's called uh, Revelation and the End of All Things that's very good, very been very helpful to me. And there's another one I'll, I'll link. Uh, there's these two books that really, when I teach Revelation, I typically encourage people to get these. But again, if you, it, what I would say is read one part of it and try to think about what these things symbolize. We use symbols all the time, colors, numbers. So, you know, if you're driving and you see a light turn from green to red, you know what that means. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what state you're in. And a lot of times it doesn't matter what country you're in. Mm-hmm. You understand the symbolism of that. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have someone interpret that for you because you understand that color change means something about what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And if if you have a red sign, let's say you're traveling in a foreign country and you see this kind of apparatus and um, there's a fence around it and there's a huge red sign on it that you can't read, but you're like, I bet that says danger, right? And yes. in, uh, you know, French or Spanish or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. language, I bet, I bet that means I should not touch that thing, right? <laughs> yes. So we, we do that. We, we interpret the world this way. And that's where, you know, I talk about culturally, we, we need to try to get into those kind of uh, images. Funny thing about the book of Revelation, there are very, very few quotes. Some, some would say none. There are very few quotes of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, but it is full of the images of the Old Testament. Mm. I always say there's really only two things you need to understand to understand the book of Revelation. You have to understand the entire Old Testament well, and you have to understand the story of New Testament eschatology. If you understand those two things, the book of Revelation falls right in place. Right? <laughs> yeah, guys, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but seriously, these these Old Testament images are, are what's being used. So, you know, this idea there's language of the plagues. You know, we have hailstones, we have frogs, we have locusts, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you think, oh, wait, what does that remind me of? You know, right, the, plagues of, the Egypt. plagues of Egypt. And so these images come back again and you think, well, what did they mean then in that context? What, you know, that's what, I'm, so that's what I'm saying. You need to understand what God had said in, in the Hebrew Bible well. And, and then once you understand that, those images make complete sense, you know. Gotcha. So like the gnats aren't Apache helicopters or something like that? <laughs> We'll get get to that. Um, So this is in chapter six. So we saw that the lamb was able to take the the scroll and open the seals. The first four seals are opened, and those are what we call the – our popular phrase of this is the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have these four horses of four different colors, which is, by the way, an image we see in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. You know, we see this in the Old Testament. We know what these stand for there. And, and so here in, in the fifth seal is the one, again, that kind of helped me go, oh, okay, I get this. So okay. so it says in, in verse 9, this is chapter 5, in ver- or I'm sorry, chapter 6 in verse 9, mm-hmm. when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar... Okay, so when you think about the altar, again, we're talking about temple furniture. This isn't the altar of incense. This is the altar of burnt offering, probably. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the place where sacrifices were were offered. Mm-hmm. And, and it says, under the altar. Again, position is important. If you think about under the altar, 
uh, I think we have a place of security, a place of safety is the idea. They're protected by, if you will, this, this altar burnt offering. But I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony that they had maintained. Now, one of the things that, that, that John is writing about and write, the people he's writing to are people who are in danger of persecution, Mm-hmm. From from the Roman Empire, when he writes these originally, he talks about this in the in the letters, uh, in the beginning of the book. Uh, but this is a time of of potential danger, and so the question is, what happens when a Christian is killed because they hold on to the the testimony about the Word of God? Uh, you know, here's an example. I didn't mean to talk about this, and I won't get too far. Hopefully, won't get too far off on this tangent. But you know, when we talk about uh, people being killed because of their maintaining the testimony for the word of God, there are people, especially in our culture in North America, who will say, well, that's, you know, that's a past thing, but we need to remember that there are brothers and sisters that we have around the world that are undergoing persecution to the point of death right now. Right. Okay. It's not just something that's happened in the past, but in certain places, it is something that happens now. Uh, we, you know, again, like it's our tendency. It's 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 part of our um, uh, being humans, I guess. Is we tend to focus upon our own circumstances. You know, I guess I said, joked earlier about making ourselves the center of the universe, but we tend to think about our own culture, our own situation, more than we think about people in other other situations. But there are people who are in different parts of the world who would read that right now and they would relate to it directly. Right. Right. But these are people who've been slain because they've maintained their testimony. They didn't turn back from their testimony. I could talk a lot about testimony. Maybe I'll do that sometime, but they kept that they, they held on to that testimony and therefore were killed. And so here's what they cry out with a loud voice. L- loud voice is important too. whenever, you know, something to say something. But when the, when the scripture said this was a loud voice, it's like, okay, this, this is mm-hmm. a message you're trying to get across. And here's what they say. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? So they're saying, and we've all said this, right? I, I actually say this is a cry that God's people have said throughout history. We have one of the Psalms that begins with this, this how question, long, how long, O oh Lord? We have in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk begins by saying, how long are you going to let this go on, Lord? And and God, of course, answers him, I'm going to do something in your day that you're not going to believe. And in fact, yes. you're going to have a little bit of trouble with it, right? But this is something that God's people have cried out, and, and I think we still do, right? God, how long are you going to let the, the evil stuff that we we read the news or we see a, a tragic thing happen? It's like, God, how long are you going to let this go on, right? Mm-hmm. The book of Revelation obviously ends with this kind of idea of come, Lord Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're ready, and, and so we want to see the world restored, the universe restored into what it was intended to be. And so this is the cry that these slain saints who are under the altar have in, in regard to this. How long are you going to allow the kind of things that are happening now to happen? Mm-hmm. And, and so here's the answer then. Each of them was given a white robe. So here's the color white. And, and in the book of Revelation and other po- apocalyptic literature, that's the idea of purity. You might think about, mm, an example, Psalm 51 is maybe one of my favorite places to think about that. When David is aware of his sin, mm-hmm. he says, wash me and I will be as white as snow. We made a song out of that, right? We have this image of 
wool, you know, this idea of, and even in, in chapter one, this idea of purity, the idea of white clothing, the, the priesthood was supposed to be characterized by this. You can think about the Old Testament story. I'm just kind of thinking about, and, and I'll say this, this is a good exercise. I will sometimes do this when I'm teaching Revelation is I'll stop and I'll say, tell me some white you know stories mm-hmm. about the color of white from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the one of the stories I think about is the beginning of the book of First Samuel, and, and you might remember that was a time when the high priest was n- not doing well. Eli was a high priest. Yes. You might remember he had two sons, sons yeah. H- Hophni and Phineas. Yeah, they uh, didn't. Things didn't turn out well for them. <laughs> well, no, they. Yeah, well. <laughs> Anyway, it's another story. <laughs> I'm just thinking about how Eli died. Yes, you know, I was I always told my kids that's why you shouldn't lean your chair back. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway. Go, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go look it up for yeah. Samuel. But um, and, and here's the contrast. It talks about Eli, and it says here was Samuel, a young boy in a linen ephod. You know, so here's this idea. He's he's pure mm-hmm. as opposed to this, this wicked priesthood, this high priest, and then especially Eli's wicked sons. Yes. Eli's big promise, he didn't do anything about his sons. Right, yeah. But Hophni and Phinehas were misusing their position in horrible ways and not leading the people well. And so Samuel, of course, then becomes a big reformer uh, and calls people back to to God. But anyway, all those images of purity, of holiness, and so they're given this white robe in order to say this is this is your position. You're, you know, you're you're given these white robes. We're going to see these later on mm-hmm. when we see this great multitude, and and it's it's this idea not because of our holiness, but because they're given this robe, right? It's because of. Uh, I tell you, here's a here's a cool uh, image later on is we talk about um, this white robe that was washed in the blood of the lamb. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that that's a kind of a contradictory statement. Right. White robe. Just blood. just a just a household tip. If you if you're trying to to get you know you make your whites whiter, you don't <laughs> don't wash put, them in in blood. Yeah, it's right? usually bleached, not you right. Know, you know, and, and yet, so it's again, it's telling us an image that holiness comes from the sacrifice that Christ made. So mm-hmm. that that's what's going on. So how long until you, you you judge? And they were given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer, a little longer, right? until the full number of their their servants, their, their brothers and sisters, their brothers were killed just as they had been. So this idea of, of wait just a little bit longer, uh, patience is the idea. And, and it's part of the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, the New Testament eschatology I was talking about understanding is this idea of endurance, patient endurance is yeah. what we're called to do. Yeah, and eschatology is... For study those that, the old times, or the last times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Study the last times. Yeah, yeah. So just make sure if you haven't listened to other episodes, people know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, th- th- we use the word eschatology just to talk about a study of the of the last things. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we have other passages in the New Testament that, that talk about this. And one of them, for example, is in First Peter where he talks about this idea that the Lord is patient with us, that, that for the, the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And uh, it says he is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Because that's when we say, how long, O Lord? We're saying it's about time. Mm-hmm. You know, you promised us this and we have not yet seen it. And so what Peter reminds us of there is that this isn't slowness in the way that we think about it, but he is patient and what's happening is he's waiting for people to come to repentance. That's what God's desire is: is for more people uh, to, be, to become a part of this, you know, this His kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so it's patience uh, 
uh, with him. The right. same way we're glad that he's he's been patient with, with us. us. Yeah, we we, we um, you know look forward to he's that being patient with other people, other right? people as well. Right. Interesting. So those are a couple of images that for me really uh, spoke a lot. So so here's the so what I, I'll I'll yes. say you just kind of <laughs> so what do we do with this? <laughs> well, I think it speaks again to the centrality of what it is that Christ accomplished on the cross and and the the finality of that in in, in a sense. Uh, it, it is ultimate. It is the ultimate act in God's plan of redemption. It is is what what Christ accomplished and and so we we trust in that we look to to him as the lamb he's the one who is worthy not us mm-hmm. <laughs> right he's the one who has who has accomplished what's necessary and so we trust in him and and you know the older i get the more i find myself preaching sermons on this and and teaching about it is that you know we it's a simple message the gospel in in a sense is very simple we we have to place our trust fully in the one who has accomplished what is necessary for us to be right with God, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not it's not a striving. It's not a you know us trying to do it on our own terms. Uh, there are a lot of times I find myself in ministry, in a, in other things, trying to make it work myself. Been a hard last. I'm going to be honest. Last year, year and a half, has been a hard year. Mm-hmm. Not only for me, a lot of people in ministry. It's been one of the hardest years I've heard people talk about. And uh, I think part of it is because we're trying to, to make things work ourselves rather than placing our trust in God and saying, you know, whatever comes and whatever mm-hmm. it is that we find ourselves in the midst of, just like these slain saints under the altar, no matter what has happened. Now, that, that's the ultimate, right, is to lose your yeah. life because of your faith. But no matter what happens, we trust that God is going to bring things about in his time in, in order to put things uh, right in the universe to put things the way that they were intended to be to restore my favorite word for what God is doing in his his work uh, the word redemption is a great word but but this idea of restoration for me helps because it reminds me that he is making things the way that he intended them to be from creation mm-hmm. Th- that's what really what this is about if we don't understand God creating the world good then the rest of the story doesn't make sense right because right. he is trying to restore what we have messed up because of our rebellion and because of our sin. And so this idea of restoration is the image that we see. The picture we see in chapter five, as I mentioned, is the universe, you know, the way it should be with God as the center and all of creation, every living creature. And I didn't talk about this, but you notice there, those above the earth, on the earth, under the earth, all living creatures giving praise to God. Mm-hmm. Really cool image. We see we see that same image actually in the book of Psalms, where we find God's people kind of leading the rest of creation in this acclamation of God as 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 our Creator and as our our ruler. So I think that's that's the the practical image there. It gives us so the book of Revelation. You know, and I'll say it just very simply. And for a lot of people, they don't like it because they want it to be a little bit more complex than this, right? Mm-hmm. But basically, the message of the book of Revelation is that is that we need to be patiently enduring because the victory has been won in Christ and God will bring about, you know, a consummation of this universe to to what it was intended to be. That God is going to get what he intended. Mm -hmm. And we want to be a part of that. We have the uh, blessing uh, of being a part of that. And when I say patient endurance, by the way, that doesn't just mean we sit around and wait. Right, but, but we we can participate with him in this work through his power, through the Spirit, 
um, that's at work within us. And that, that's, you know, again, if you look at the very first part of the book of Revelation, the message to the seven churches, you know, here are the things that you need to need to be doing. And I think that we, you know, have the, again, the privilege uh, of participating with him in this this project of restoration, of rec- reclamation, yeah. if you and, want to call it. And we talked about that in one of our previous yeah. episodes. Yeah. I know we'll come before this one, but right. just like that, you know, even like mission trips and medical care and sure. stuff, we're pushing back against, right. you know, the, the death, the, the effects of sin and death, and that yeah. we, even now, we can be participating. Yes with God and restoring. And, and, and so, and this, and the revelation is about the consummation. Like, yeah. you know, I was thinking about that as with God at the center and the throne at the center, it, you know, that's, that's what Eden was. Yes. And then the garden Absolutely. was out from there. And like the yes. creation was, it was all Eden was the center, Yeah, you know, and then the rest of creation was outside of that. And Adam was to, to go out and subdue. And so right. we're, we're participating in trying to sub, subdue the world for God yes. now. Absolutely. And I don't want the word subdue could be a little <laughs> weird. We're not trying right. to, um, but that that's what revelation is is showing us is that it's it's made back to what originally it was meant to be that's absolutely it that's absolutely right you know i'll say you, you mentioned mission trips and all those kinds of things those are those are fantastic but it you know the cool thing is it's every day of our lives in right. our in our workplace in our homes uh in our neighborhoods you know we're we're doing that work of pushing it back against the effects of sin in the fall all the time right and when you begin to think about it that way then the christian life becomes a very uh, I, I, we use the word adventure in, in so many different ways, but it becomes an adventurous journey that we're we're trying to think about. How can I today uh, today bring the kingdom in the places where I'm going to be? Everywhere my foot you know falls, mm-hmm. how how can I uh, advance God's kingdom in this place, in my workplace, in, in my neighborhood, in my home? You know, we mm-hmm. we we ignore that too many times. I know I have, but you know, in all those places to be the people that God has called us to be, but also to promote his kingdom and to bring bring the kingdom in the places where we go. Yeah. You can do it right in front of you. You don't have to yeah. go on a mission trip. You just use that. You know, no, and those, those are great. I'm not trying to yeah. belittle that. I'm just trying to remind us it's not just these special times. It's not right. just when we show up for church on Sunday morning. We, we, we would declare Jesus Lord. Yes. You know, it's a, we, we, you're in charge, and this is what you're calling us to of do, is to push, yeah. push against yeah. uh, the result of sin yeah. every day. Absolutely. So. Excellent. Well, that was some great, uh, great teaching there, Good. Brian. Well, and and, and a, gr- a great question again. Thanks to Mike for for asking that question. It made me think about it because again, the the message of the whole book of Revelation is so so fantastic. But those were a couple places that kind of gave me an entree, a, a way to get into the to the book. And maybe that's maybe that's where. Uh, for other people, that will kind of click with them. If not, again, like I said, I hope we at some point do a class on on Revelation and we can kind of work through it in more detail. Yeah, and I, I just a, a final thought here is I think everyone typically thinks Revelation is the the future, yeah, and, but some of it is for us today, right? Like this is this is for us today, right. and so. Uh, maybe a little bit of mind shift for for some out yeah, there. Yeah, so. absolutely. Anyway, well, Brian, thanks so much for sharing. Thank uh, you, Ryan. All the information. Yeah. Well, we'll talk to you soon. All right. See ya. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. Next week, we're doing something totally new for the podcast, and we are calling it Pastor Chat. And it is just that, a chat with a pastor about the ministry they are a part of, their wins, and how they are equipping their church to face the challenges of today. Our Pastor Chat next week will be with Greg Taylor, who is the lead minister of Second Church of Christ in Danville, Illinois. We hope you will join us for that conversation. 
You can also find show notes, links, and more at thebiblebistro.com, as well as sign up for our email newsletter to stay in touch, but also to get some exclusive content we are working on right now. You can find us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Bible Bistro. And as always, you can subscribe to us on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next Tuesday.